just to, to kind of catch you up to speed, if this is your first time in this room with us, we are currently working our way through the book of Hebrews as a church. It's a, it's a sermon series that we began all the way back in September. We worked our way through the first 10 chapters of this book of the Bible, and then we hit, hit pause for the month of January and, and got back after it a few weeks ago, diving into part two of this series, beginning in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we do... Uh, from time to time, try to work our way through books of the Bible. We believe in preaching the full counsel of God's word, as Paul uh, talks about. And at times we do hit the pause button to dive into topical sermon series like we did in January on the church. If you're wanting to get a better idea of who the church is at large, that'd be a great series to go back and engage the, the podcast from. Uh, if you want to get a, an idea of who we are as Cross Point Peachtree City, that'll help to answer some of those questions as well. But this morning, we're going to Yet again, dive into the book of Hebrews. As I've mentioned numerous times throughout this series, this is a unique book of the Bible. It's a fascinating book of the Bible. It's a book that puts on full display the, the glorious reality that the Bible tells one beautifully interwoven, overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing. The, the author of Hebrews is writing to a people declaring, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity. And so the author of Hebrews does something really interesting. He doesn't begin with, hey, don't abandon Christianity, but rather he begins with, look at all the ways that Jesus is supremely valuable and glorious. That for 10 chapters, he essentially spins the jewel that is Jesus Christ allowing us to look at one facet after another, putting Jesus on full display for this battle-inflicted audience that he's writing to. Chapter 11 and beyond represents a shift, which is why we hit the pause button and jumped back into part two, beginning in chapter 11. It's not a shift in the sense that the last three chapters of this book of the Bible have nothing to do with Jesus. It's a shift in the sense that the author wants us to understand that something is meant to happen as we behold Jesus. That all those glorious truths about Jesus that saturate the first 10 chapters of this book of the Bible are meant to create in us a settled confidence in God and his promises. A confidence that drives us to keep trusting, to keep enduring, to keep persevering. A confidence that, that actually radically impa impacts the way we look at and engage the present realities of life. For the past three weeks, we talked about that settled confidence, which the Bible gives a name to, faith. And so we spent a great deal of time talking about what faith is, how faith works. We took a look at men and women of faith throughout the ages who both believed in God and believed God, some in the midst of great triumph, others in the furnace of affliction, none perfect, but to use the metaphor of a race, all persevering to the finish line. Last week, we had the opportunity to, to put ourselves in the race. We talked about what it is to run toward Jesus with joyful endurance, to shed the sin and weight that clings so closely so that we might run unencumbered toward the one who has rescued us by his grace, trusting that, that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, trusting that he will finish the good work that he began in us, trusting that, um, that we can cling to him and look to him and that he will hold us fast as we do so. Fixing our eyes on the joy that is ours at the finish line, the joy of eternal life, the joy of everything sad coming untrue, the joy of being part of one of the most glorious happily ever afters the world has ever known, the joy of seeing Jesus face to face and being eternally satisfied in him. This morning, we get the opportunity to consider yet another aspect of 
what it means to run the race with joyful endurance. And, and my prayer is this. My prayer is that some of us would walk away with a new perspective regarding trial and suffering and, and that all of us would walk away encouraged by what this passage reveals to us about God and how he relates to us. So with that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be in verses 4 through 11 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the Bible that you do happen to own is a difficult translation to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get going this morning. Father, just the fact that we could begin a prayer with that word is mind-blowing. The gospel declares that we have been adopted into a family with a heavenly father who deeply loves us. Jesus is our big brother who has accomplished our redemption, filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit, surrounded by siblings in the faith. God, you have accomplished that. Jesus, you have accomplished that through your life, death, and resurrection. I pray that that glorious reality would not fall on deaf ears this morning, that we would walk away encouraged and overwhelmed with your lavish love and grace, that you would invite us in to be a part of your family, and that you would help us to see what the trials and hardships that we go through in life are meant to accomplish. God, would you give us new or, or maybe rejuvenated perspective as it pertains to the difficulties of life, those seasons when we are walked through the furnace of affliction. Would you encourage us and help us to see that those moments, those seasons are not meaningless. They have purpose and they actually communicate your deep love for us. God, would you open our hearts to receive the beauty and truth of your word this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of your son I pray, amen. So as I mentioned, for, for weeks now, we've been talking about what it means to run toward Jesus with joyful endurance, particularly in the midst of weariness and hardship, very much like the original recipients of this letter. We've, we've talked about some of those challenges associated with running toward Jesus with joyful endurance. One of those challenges being sin. Sin is real, and it, as we all know, it doesn't go away when we become Christ followers. It's a real threat that we have to contend with each and every day. Another challenge being those things that are not necessarily categorically sinful or evil, but things that nonetheless weigh us down, impeding our ability to run. And then there's the, the challenge of simply keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith, believing that, that if we will uh, stop navel-gazing as it pertains to questions about our faith and actually fix our eyes on him, our faith will become stronger. This morning's passage presents us with yet another challenge to running the race that is the Christian life. And it has everything to do with our perception of God and our perception of our circumstances, particularly when we find ourselves in those seasons of weariness and hardship. Beginning in verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. All right, let me, let me just stop right here. The author of Hebrews does something pretty gutsy, I would say, in verse 4. He essentially says, your life is really not as bad as you think it is. Ah, the, 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 the shepherd's heart, right? You're like, come on, man, seriously? 
But there is a great deal of truth to what he's saying. Jesus's commitment to faithful obedience carried him all the way to the cross. Jesus's obedience led to the shedding of his blood. The same fate as many of the men and women that we read about in chapter 11. The original audience of this letter, though experiencing persecution, was not yet, at least, facing martyrdom. My guess is is that the same could be said of pretty much everyone sitting in this room this morning. That in some sense, God could present us with far more difficult steps of obedient action than any of us are facing right now. The author of Hebrews is, is attempting to give us a little bit of perspective And he continues to do so in verse five. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises the son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. All right, first of all, let's not let it go unnoticed that there's a rebuke here for having forgotten God's word. He says, have you forgotten, verse five, and then he goes on to quote Proverbs chapter three. Have you forgotten what Proverbs chapter three says? That if you were holding the scriptures near to your heart, you would have been strengthened and encouraged in this moment of affliction. There's a, there's a reminder in that for all of us, I think, that the scriptures are the weapon that we wield in the fight against sin and unbelief. That the scriptures are our encouragement in the midst of weariness and hardship. What is the encouragement to be found in Proverbs three? Well, the answer is this. Ultimately, that the hardships that we face in life are not a sign of God's abandonment, but rather his fatherhood. For some of us, that might be the one thing to get our mind and hearts around this morning. The hardships that we face in life are not a sign of God's abandonment, but rather his fatherhood. One of the most beautiful doctrines in all of scripture, the, the bridgeway to my own personal belief in the gospel and my own conversion, the doctrine of adoption, The doctrine of adoption says that we were all orphans spiritually diving in the dumpsters of depravity and by his grace, God reached down through the person and work of Jesus Christ and and adopted us as sons and daughters. That we were once dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive from children of wrath to children of God, from fatherless to the God of the universe calling us his beloved. That if you're a Christian this morning, you are a walking miracle. Right now, you're a sitting miracle, but you get what I'm saying. Like You're a walking miracle. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Where we were once separated from God, we are now loved by God deeply. So many passages I could take you to. I had to cut some this morning because there's so many. Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Romans eight fifteen. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to me. If you are a Christian, God is your father. You are not a spiritual orphan. You do not have to dive in the dumpsters of depravity anymore. You have been rescued in out of the back alleys of darkness and given a home and a name. God is your Abba and you are his child. Now here's the difficult part for us to grab hold of with our hearts, I think. That with the fatherhood of God comes the fatherly discipline of God. And and let me just stop here for a second and, and clarify something before we move on. Because I, I think maybe, we, maybe we, re, we reduce a theology of God's discipline to less than what it is. We truncate that, that doctrine, that theology. And so let me just say this to, to bring some clarity before we move on. God's discipline in our lives is not always corrective. It's not. Sometimes God's discipline is preventative. Paul's thorn in the flesh, great example, was given to keep, to prevent Paul from becoming conceited because of all the great revelations that God had given him. Sometimes God's discipline is preventative. Other times God's discipline is educational. Think about Job, the story of Job. Job's afflictions came not as corrective or preventative discipline. Job's afflictions came not because he was doing poorly, but because he was doing well. God used the affliction that Job experienced to bring him to greater levels of understanding and experiencing God so that toward the end of the book of Job, Job could say, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now I've had a deeper taste of who you are, God, a deeper experience of who you are. Not all of God's discipline in our lives is corrective. Sometimes it's preventative, other times educational. However, the emphasis in this morning's passage is certainly more so on the corrective nature of God's fatherly discipline. He says, do not be weary when reproved by him. He chastises every son whom he receives. That's, that's the language of corrective discipline. Like any good dad, God brings his corrective discipline into the lives of his children. For those of you who I haven't had a chance to, to meet and connect with, we have a two-year-old little girl and a three-year-old little girl, 13 months apart. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen those motivational posters. They're not very motivating, but it's usually a backdrop of nature and then like a word, you know, like perseverance and then the ocean behind it or courage and a mountaintop and you're supposed to somehow connect those dots. Um, I think it would be very easy for my wife and I to put together one of those posters, just put our kids' giant faces with their giant cheeks on it and just put the word klutz at the bottom of it because (laughs) it's just, it's the reality. And so, Some of you who are parents in the room, you may not have to do this, but we have to adamantly tell our kids not to stand in the kitchen chairs or the dining room chairs because were they to do that, there is a at least a 90% chance that we're gonna be breaking out the Disney princess band-aids within a matter of minutes. It's just gonna happen. And so we we bring that, that discipline into the picture. If they don't listen to us, we correct them. And we do that not because we don't love them, but because we deeply love them. That's the love of God. God's love is 
is far more comprehensive than I, I think we oftentimes think. And, and maybe even far more comprehensive than we'd like it to be, if we could be honest for a second. Does God love us so much that he would send his son to die for us? That, that he would rescue us out of our spiritually orphaned state? Hallelujah, yes and amen. But God doesn't love us enough to simply adopt us. He loves us so much that like a good father, he will not allow us to be crushed by our own complacency, by our own disobedience, by our own foolishness. He's in a pursuit of an intimate relationship with us. And if it, if it takes sorrows and griefs to draw us closer to him, then sorrows and griefs we shall face, brothers and sisters. At first pass, that might sound absolutely absurd. Maybe you've never even heard that as you've gathered with a church before. You're telling me that God loves me so much that he would send me sorrows? Why would God do that? And I think the answer is this. Sometimes sorrow is exactly what it takes to pry our grip off of lesser things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. It took hurling a hurricane at Jonah to get him back. It's that kind of perspective that makes sense of passages like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, those trials that you and I face in life, relationally, physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, and on and on we could go, those trials are the means by which our Heavenly Father is completing the good work that He began in us. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 says it this way. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That, that as a father, God is committed to prying lesser objects of hope from your heart's grip so that you might know something more of the hope in God that doesn't disappoint. A hope that will never put you to shame, as Paul says there in Romans 5. I've said this on a number of occasions in this space, and I'll say it again. We're, we're oftentimes so quick to point the finger at the devil when things don't go our way. Sometimes we, we can certainly do that, and I think the dots connect. But I think more often than maybe we should, we assume that we're under spiritual attack when we're actually under spiritual surgery as our Heavenly Father works to remove the idols deeply rooted in our hearts. Matt Chandler, president of our church planting network, made a profound statement at one point along the way, and it was profound enough that I, I wrote it down. I've shared it with you before, uh, some of you. He says this. He says, God will break the hand that refuses to let go of what will harm it. Let me say that again. God will break the hand that refuses to let go of what will harm it. And here's the crazy thing. The breaking of that hand is an act of love. A father's love for his beloved son or daughter. Make no mistake about it. Satan will, will never strip you of your idols. He's not in the business of doing that. He's happy to let you continue putting your trust in, in lesser things. Only your heavenly father will perform that surgery. 
That's how much he loves you. He will not rest until your heart is happy in him. The author of Hebrews goes so far as to say that, and this is very strong language, if you know nothing of the disciplinary love of God, then you're not a child of God. That the absence of discipline in the life of a child is actually a form of fatherly rejection. God's not an absentee father. He's involved in the lives of his children without one exception. He doesn't abdicate his fatherly responsibility to train and refine his children in love. If you're his child, you will experience something of his fatherly discipline at some point along the way. And to be sure, another clarifying statement, there is a difference between discipline and wrath. Don't mistake God's purification for God's condemnation. A verse we throw around all the time around here, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No wrath for you if you're a child of God. The wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus Christ in your place. That's what the gospel declares. Fatherly discipline for you if you're a child of God is not punitive, but rather purifying. Jesus became your curse. He became your condemnation. That's not what the fatherly discipline of the Lord is. If if you were on the, the receiving end of an abusive dad as a kid, and I grieve that with you. I really do. This morning, uh, or excuse me, this week as I was thinking through and preparing this sermon, I had a couple of moments where I just, I wept. Because I thought, people will be bringing in their past into this space, some whom have been abused and are trying to sort out what it means to have a, a heavenly father who loves them and who disciplines them for their good. Others, maybe fathers who were absentee or abdicated their, their role in, in leading and loving you as a child. I grieve that with you as well. But, but listen to me, that's not God. It's not. He loves his children whom he disciplines in love. He's not an abdicator nor an abuser. He's a good father who loves us and will do everything he can to make our hearts happy in him. Do you ever have the thought that, and I think if we're honest, we all would say yes to this question, the, the thought that the trials that you're going through must mean that God has somehow checked out on you in this season of life? According to these verses, it's actually quite the opposite. That those very trials indicate that you have a divine parent who is deeply involved in your life. Now, having said all that, what do we do with it? What's to be our response in those moments of difficulty, those moments of training, those moments of discipline that come from our Father in heaven? Well, according to verse 5, there are two things that we're told not to do. For one, don't take it lightly. Take it to heart. Ask yourself the question, what is my heavenly Father looking to teach me through this? Don't squander the opportunity to learn something about God. Don't squander the opportunity to learn something about yourself. Don't squander the opportunity to learn something about the world that you inhabit. And secondly, don't allow weariness to set in. Don't grow faint-hearted. Don't give up. Keep enduring. Keep trusting. Keep persevering, which the author of Hebrews has been saying over and over again now for 12 chapters Rally other sons and daughters of God around you if you have to. Whatever it takes to keep running toward Jesus. 
Verse nine, he goes on to say, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we, we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, our heavenly father, for our good that we may share his holiness. Let me come back to this for a second. Some of us in this room, we look at verse 9 and are like, yep, that was my dad. He disciplined me in love. And though I may not have agreed with him at the time, I now respect him for it. Others of us look at verse 9 and are like, nope, that wasn't my dad at all. He wasn't around when I was a kid or he didn't discipline me at all. He let me go off the rails or he abused me in the name of discipline and I have no respect for him and I have a really hard time wrapping my mind around a passage like this one. My dad left when I was uh, just a few years old and, and so it was just me and my mom. She was... She was Batman, I was Robin, I was riding in the sidecar for several years uh, during my, my formative moments in life. I knew nothing of the loving discipline of an earthly father in the most formative years of my adolescence. But here's what I find encouraging. Where earthly fathers fail us, God will never fail us. I mean, even the best dads get it wrong, don't they? I know I do. Sometimes too severe in disciplining my kids. Other times too lax. Discipline motivated by anger rather than love. Discipline motivated by oppressing on my comfort idol in the moment. Not our Heavenly Father. He embodies perfect wisdom and love. He, God never gets it wrong. He's a better dad than I'll ever be to my two little girls. Look at the goal of his fatherly discipline. It says he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness, which means that he never allows us to experience anything that's not ultimately for our good. If you're, if you're a Christian, get your mind around this. The difficult things that you go through are not meaningless. I think oftentimes we, when we're run through the refining fire, so to speak, we consider those seasons of life to be useless, purposeless, and meaningless if only we can get past them to the next season of purpose in our lives. And what this passage says is, no, these seasons too have deep, intricate, significant, eternal meaning in our lives. That God is working for your good, even in the furnace of affliction, as crazy as that may sound. I think the great challenge is believing that to be true when things don't seem to be for our good. When things don't seem to have purpose and meaning. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. No one with... No one with any semblance of sanity is shouting from the rooftops, bring on the sickness, bring on the affliction, bring on the persecution, maybe even the martyrdom, hooray. Like nobody's doing that, right? If you're doing that, we need to hang out. I need to talk to you and speak something into your life. Of course the trials of life are painful rather than pleasant in the experience of them. You could... You, you really could summarize the commentary on the first part of verse 11 in one word. Duh. 
you begin to see why, why people would rather just shape God into their own image, right? It's less painful. You don't have to change. God does. Part of what it means to run the race with joyful endurance is acknowledging that God is the one who gets to do the carving, the chiseling. That he gets to chisel away the old you, the old me, and conform us into the image of his son. And by the way, that's his bread and butter. He's really good at doing that. He loves to restore broken image bearers. You might ask, how is it that God can orchestrate good through painful loss? I just have a hard time seeing that, that any good could possibly come from my situation, the things that I'm facing right now in life. And if that's you, can I just simply say, look no further than Calvary. God orchestrated the greatest good that the world has ever known through the crucifixion of his son. The cross, the cross reminds us that God gave his own son so that we might become his sons and daughters. If you're you're not a Christian, by the way, that's the takeaway. You can become a beloved child of God right now. That Jesus was the perfect son living the perfect obedient life that you and I could never live. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die That because the father turned his face away from the son in that moment on the cross, he can turn his face toward you in love. And so I would invite you to turn to him now, to trust him in faith, to become a son or daughter of God by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to talk more about what that means, I would love to hang out with you. Uh, Find a time to connect after this service. And if you are a Christian... Please don't take lightly the glorious reality that you are a walking miracle. You're a child of the living God. You're not a spiritual orphan. You have been rescued out of the dumpsters of depravity, brought in off the streets and given a home and a name. God is your Abba and you are his beloved child. Soak in that this week. And know, as you do, that as his children... You and I, we cannot escape the refining fire of God's love. He loves us too much to allow us to escape it. But we can look for traces of it. We can look for traces of God at work in our lives, and we can trust him in the midst of the furnace of affliction when it comes our way. That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, graciously, graciously give us all things? He gave us Jesus, the hope of our eternal adoption. Anything else he gives us must be for our ultimate good. In a moment, we're going to shift into a time of worship in a a multitude of ways. We're going to open up the communion tables. They'll be available throughout the rest of our service. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. I would invite you as you prepare to come and receive of communion this morning to just stop and soak in the beautiful, glorious doctrine of adoption that in Christ, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have been ushered in, brought in, given a home, given a name. You are a beloved child of the living God.